0: as we see humans, as we interact with one another, as we read the scriptures, how can our souls not cry? How great thou art. I mean, if that's not overwhelming to us, if we don't grasp that, then we don't get anything. Everything in the universe exists to shine a spotlight on how great our God is. Everything exists for His glory, including you and me. We're going to be back in Luke uh, chapter 21 today, and we're going to talk about the reality that the King is coming, and the response that we should be watchful, yet not worry. As you turn to Luke 21, just a little back, Jesus has been pointing out the difference between reality and perception. He's gone through a lot of uh, scenarios where it seems like one thing or we see one thing, but reality is another. We focus on the temporary. God has something bigger behind it that we often don't see. Jesus has been focusing our attention there. Stop seeing what's right here in front of you. Stop focusing in on this individual tree and begin to look at the forest. Begin to the bigness, the greatness of our God. As we left off in chapter 1, we had looked at the widow's offering as Jesus said, you see all these people giving all these gifts, but I'm telling you, this woman who gave the smallest amount gave the greatest amount. She gave all that she had. And on the heels of that, his apostles are noticing how beautiful the temple is. They're, they're seeing the, the gems and the stones adorning the temple and the great storehouse of gifts that have been brought in worship. And they say, Lord, isn't it awesome? Isn't this great? And Jesus says, eh, yeah, kind of. But rest assured, what you see here, you just see a facade. All of this is coming down. All of this will become rubble. There's something bigger. There's greater reality. As we pick up there today, he's describing what is yet to come. They ask him, Lord, what, what's going to be the sign that these things are about? How will we know? He says, well, let me tell you. Here's how you're not going to know. And here's how you're going to know. And more importantly, here's what you should do. So before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the knowledge that that you care enough about us to give us your written word, so that we don't have to guess at your heart or your intention. You've given us the beauty of the earth. This is your world, my Father's world. And Lord, as we take in all of the glory here, let us never forget that no matter what is going on around us, you alone are the ruler yet. Father, you are great, you are glorious, you are holy, you are mighty and majestic. Let that sink into our hearts. Protect us from growing cold and callous toward you. Protect us from going through the motions of religion or thinking that these are things that we need to work up in our minds, a set of beliefs that we need to adhere to as opposed to recognizing that this is reality. Father, teach us your ways. Help us to be hungry for your word, to your word, to trust your word, to obey your word. Make these Pages come alive to us today that we may be truly alive in our every moment. We pray these things in the name of your Son Jesus for your glory. Amen. We're going to be picking up in the book of Luke with verse 5. On the heels of this conversation about the widow and her offering, we read this. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, "As for what you, uh, as for what you see here, the time will come when a stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down." The teacher, they asked, "When will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place?" replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. So you will bear testimony to me. Another rendering says, This will result in you being a witness to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Betrayed. You'll be betrayed by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs, sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring <clears throat> excuse me. At the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, and lift up your heads. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the leaves. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, patience will certainly not pass until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Be careful. Or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the, whole, on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, you may be, <clears throat> and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening He went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear Him at the temple. God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we read this, we want to be able to grasp this basic concept, this central point, this core reality. The king is coming. Be watchful, not worried. As Luke writes this, as he records this conversation that Jesus has had with his disciples, what he's putting down here is similar, it's the same, but it's different in how he records it from Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark tell these same things. They record these these same conversations, the same words of Christ, but their purpose is different. Luke's purpose is different, so they compile them slightly differently. Just like you and I, when we tell a story, we may emphasize a certain point, because that's the point of the story in that telling, and we may leave out some details, because they don't really carry it along in that telling. Another time we may tell the same story ourselves. Just as factually, just as accurately, but we emphasize a different point. We bring in those details that we left out. We leave out some details that really don't carry it along for that particular day. Same thing happens as we see perspectives of the gospel. Four different writers writing for four different purposes to four different audiences telling of the one Son of God who came to place, to seek and to save the lost, to take away the sins of the world, and more to the point, the sins of you and me personally. As we read this account from Luke, remember Luke is trying to establish a basis of belief so that we can know the certainty of that which we've been taught. We can take hold of the scriptures and have a foundation for our faith. Jesus, as He's talking to these disciples, is doing very much the same thing. He's getting to the end of His earthly ministry. Back in chapter 19, He said that the purpose here is that He came to seek and to save the lost. He's been proclaiming the kingdom. He has been uh, demonstrating the authority of who He is so that they can recognize him as the king and accept his offer of grace. This is the good news, the gospel. Today, he echoes what he said in Luke chapter 12, that there is a bad news. Without the bad news, the good news is meaningless. The good news that you can be saved means nothing if there isn't something real to be saved from. Right? Walk up to a stranger on the street sometime and say, Hey, forgive you. See what kind of impact it has. That means nothing. What do they care? You have nothing to forgive them for. But try that in a deeply wounded relationship. With someone that you have held bitterness against. See the impact that that has. Try that with a cheating spouse. Whole different world, isn't it? That's what God is doing with us. Our cheating, We are His cheating spouse. The picture He gives us in Israel is an unfaithful bride. One that He has claimed for His own that has been unfaithful. And He clarifies that for the nation of Israel through prophecies much like we see in the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea, the prophet of God to the people, is called by God, specifically instructed to marry a woman who is at her very core unfaithful. And her actions eventually follow. She ends up not only carousing in the streets, but eventually being trafficked for purposes you can imagine. Hosea... Obviously hurt. Obviously angry. Cannot tolerate this behavior. Obviously. Hosea, who represents God, in faithfulness goes and buys her back. The one who already belonged to him, who rebelled against him, who was unfaithful, he buys her back. God's message to Israel is, you are mine because I have claimed I have given you everything you could ever want and you wanted everybody and everything else but I'm not done I will redeem you my own outstretched arm I will personally save and redeem you as my people how many of you can recognize that story in your own walk with Christ I know I can. My deepest lament in life is that for the better part of 50 years, I'll give myself a pass on the first 6 or 12 months. I have lived a whole lot more like Gomer than like Hosea. For most of my life, i claimed faithfulness to God, and yet, My affections, my focus has been on everything else. Sometimes, obviously sinful things. Sometimes, good things. Worldly things, but good things. How many times have you talked to me after church and I've said, Hey, how about those cubs? That won't be said today, I'll tell you. Or you talk about the football game happening this afternoon. Or what Notre Dame did yesterday. Or Michigan did yesterday. Or whatever. Or the weather. And those are all fine things. But we are in the house of God. This is a transcendent moment. If we leave this place and our hearts are not singing from the very depths of our soul, how great thou art. And I've failed. And I've been unfaithful often that's been the story of my life. Jesus is here to tell the story of all of our lives. The picture of the church, the people of God. And as he's dealing with this, he's laying out the plan, not every detail, but he's laying out the plan of what is to come. The end is inevitable. Not the end, because the end is really the beginning. If you know anything about the end times and what we see in Daniel and Revelation and all the prophecies that are given, as Jesus has already pointed out, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. So the end of things, the end of time, is really only the end of things as we know them. And God starts with a whole new, perfect, sinless shameless, perfectly just, perfectly peaceful world. But between now and then, everything that is not eternal, everything that is not of God, everything that has been touched, corrupted, stained by sin, must be eliminated. It has to be destroyed. If it isn't, then that kingdom can't be what that kingdom was meant to be. It can't be perfect. We can't keep anything that we know from this world that has been stained and corrupted by the sin that started in Genesis 3 and has carried through my own pride and my own arrogance and my own foolishness. None of that can stay. None of it. How many of you realize that climate is a real thing? Now, I'm not trying to talk politics. I'm not even trying to talk science has been changing since Genesis 3. When sin entered the system, everything began to decay. Second law of thermodynamics. Entropy comes in. And everything that exists, everything in the physical realm, is corrupted by our sin. That's what Paul says in Romans. and this is all groaning as in childbirth. Waiting for the revelation of the children of God. Good things are coming, but between now and then, there has to be a purging. If you are in the military or have been in the military, you know you go through, only one specific group calls it help, but you go through what feels like it to you when you go through boot camp, when you go through basic military training. And what they're doing is driving out of you, through humiliation and suffering, for your own good, everything that will hinder you from being who you were meant to be. Everything that's going to keep you from being the best soldier, airman, sailor, marine that you could be. Psychologists and sociologists call that desocialization. We want to remove the old to allow the new to flourish. A lot like weeding. We've got to get rid of. In some cases, you have burned down the waste so that you can start fresh. That might be necessary in a corrupted world. As the disciples observe the temple, they're seeing the surface. They're missing out on the fact, and Jesus has already demonstrated this as He purged the temple just a chapter ago. He came in and kicked out the money changers. You've defiled this. This is a house of God, and you've defiled my house. They should already be recognizing that the temple has lost its purpose. All that remains is a religious facade. But they are two caught up in this world to be able to recognize that there is a greater thing going on. Jesus calls them out and they say, wow, tell us more. What's going to happen? And notice as Jesus talks through this, there are some very obvious things that that you see. And one of them is that this is inevitable. Everybody is going to face this. Another thing that you see is that God controls it. It doesn't just happen randomly and wantonly. It happens under the control of the sovereign of the universe. And so when Jesus says, don't be afraid, there's a reason. You see these things happen, happening, don't be frightened. When you see these things happening, notice when he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, flee the city, run for the hills, but don't be afraid. How does that work? run, but don't be afraid. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be imprisoned, but don't worry about how you're going to defend yourself. That doesn't really function well in our brains. Some of you will even be killed, but not a hair on your head. How's that work? As Jesus is giving us a glimpse into what God the Father is doing, not just today, but in the future, we need to do what he's been calling us to in the previous chapter as we've moved into this. We need to lift our gaze from what we see all around us. We need to let go of our perception. We need to step out of the matrix and be able to see the real world, the reality of what God is doing. Before we continue with this, I want to do some more reading because I don't want to get caught up. I know that... You know, you guys don't mind being here for three or four hours, but if I don't keep some control here, we'll be gone for a long time. So, what we're going to do right now—keep Luke, Mark—to be back here. The same account shows up in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. We're not going to look at those, uh, even though that was my original intent. But that's just too much material for us to cover. So we're going to—we're going to kind of cut to the chase. And what I want you to do: go backward from here. Keep Luke 21, Mark. Go backwards to Luke. We're going to read several passages before we get to your note-taking. So if you have something, I left a little space there, if you have something you want to jot down that stands out to you from the Scriptures, or a question you want to ask later, jot that down in that whatever blank space you can find, so you can come back to it, and then we'll get to filling in the blanks later toward the end. Chapter 12. in your program. It says Luke 12, 1 and 2. It should say Luke 12, 1 to 12. But I digress. 12, starting with verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, let that sink in for a moment, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. He's got the crowds around. The disciples are those who are committed. Not necessarily the 12, but those who are committed to him who are following Him, made that decision already. It says this, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. Okay, There's Whatever you think you're hiding, it won't remain hidden. Whatever God is hiding, as part of the mystery of who He is, He will reveal it. Everything will be out in the open. Verse 3, What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the are brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Notice the similarities here of not worrying in in advance about what, uh, what you need to say because God will take care of that. The Holy Spirit will take care of it in you. one of the things that we really need to see in this before we can grasp the rest is that we have a natural fear of those who can harm us physically those who can kill the body we have a natural fear in the physical realm the material realm a fear of losing our jobs a fear of how our children are going to turn out of what's going to happen when i have this confrontation at work what's going to you know what's going to come next how am i going to pay my bills how am i going to fix this issue, this problem. And Jesus, while he's saying, don't fear those who can kill the body, what he's, the context of the rest of this is, don't fear anything in this world. Because this world is passing. But there is one whom you should fear. Fear God. Because once your body is done, there is an eternity. And one, one, in the entire universe, makes the decision as to whether you will be in heaven or in hell for that eternity. There aren't any other options. The default for us, the default for every single person, everyone in this room, everyone i have ever met, even the little children in the nursery, the default for all of us, if God doesn't intervene and snatch us out of the fire, is hell. And we need to be aware of that. That's the bad news. That's why this judgment that is to come in Luke twenty-one is something that people would fear, would worry about. There are terrors coming. Interestingly, right after this, he deals with this uh, the, the parable of the rich fool. But then he goes into this whole thing about not worrying about all of the stuff in life. That's the segue. That's where we make this connection. Don't worry about those who can kill the body. Don't worry about what's going on here in your life. God's got you. He's going to take care of this. Let's pick up at verse 35. Directly ties to what he says in Luke 21, and what we'll see elsewhere. Be dressed, ready for service. Keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. The master will dress the servants. He will dress himself to serve. will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do do not expect. Why is he talking about a homeowner and a thief? How many of us steal time from God? We do all of our stuff. God gets what's left over. We act like the little kid who thinks they're getting away with something because mom and dad don't notice. So they peek around the corner to make sure nobody's coming. If they knew when mom and dad were coming, they would get things right. We do the same thing with God. We have this tendency to try to pretend that we've got things worked out. As long as nobody knows that I'm sinning, I'm not sinning, right? As long as everybody thinks I'm godly, I must be godly. Last time we were together without dancers, we talked about the reality that you can fool yourself and you can fool others, but you can't fool God. Not ever. He knows. He knows the secret things. And everything that is hidden will be revealed. God wants us to know. He wants us to understand already understand ours. As we move through this, this idea of watchfulness comes up. We're going to see it again and again. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians. Where's 1 Thessalonians? Go straight past Luke. If you get to Timothy and Titus, you've gone a little bit too far. Past Galatians and Philippians. If you find 2 Thessalonians, it's the one right before that. Thessalonians is a book of encouragement for those facing persecution. And as he's writing this letter to the Thessalonian church, um, he talks about what is to come. And it's very similar to what Jesus is saying in Luke. There are signs. You can recognize the signs. And then the end will come. But his perspective, Paul's perspective as he writes this, is not the way a lot of fire and brimstone preachers preach it. I I, I saw some uh, advertising from the Seventh-day Adventist the other day that was very, very dramatic about the end. I'm not even saying it's wrong, but the, the whole thing was what this epic movie, God is coming! That's not the tone that Paul has. Let's see what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to pick up with verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Just a little side note. Isn't it great to go to a Christian funeral for somebody that you love that died and it hurts so much it seems palpable? but you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know as much as you know that I'm standing right here with you, that that person is in eternity with Jesus right now, experiencing joy they've never experienced before. I'm telling you, at my father's funeral, my heart was broken, and yet I was so filled with joy, I couldn't even describe it to you accurately now. Because I know, as much as I know that I'm standing here and breathing, I know where He is what Paul's talking about right here. Yeah, we grieve, for sure. But we don't grieve like those who have no hope. When you go to a, a funeral of a Christ follower, it should be... there. It, it's appropriate for weeping, absolutely. But there should be an inner rejoicing. We will miss them. They won't miss us. Now, well, they waste, while they're in the presence of Jesus... Thinking about, oh man, I sure wish I was back home. Rejoice, grieve, but not like those without hope. Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that, uh, excuse me, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we're not going to go first. Those who have already died are going to be with Him sooner. Notice what he says in the next verse. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, wait a minute. When when we see this, we often just kind of blow this off. When we talk about these end times things and resurrection things, it just seems so pie in the sky. We don't really process it. But notice, just before this passage that we're reading today in Luke 21, just prior to this, just before the widow's mite, the Sadducees are trying to trap him. Right? How many of you remember that? Raise your hand if you remember a couple weeks ago when we were dealing with that. Okay, so the Sadducees are trying to trap him with this convoluted, uh, just really messed up question about marriage to try to prove that there's no such thing as a resurrection. Jesus completely refutes that by spinning it around to say, here's what God has always said, this has always been the hope of God's people, that it's more than just some metaphysical thought, but we will, in the end, and this has always been the prophecy of God, we will be reunited, both spirit and body together. Hard to get? Well, yeah, because we ain't been there yet. We will be resurrected. However, that plays out, I'm pretty sure the God who created the universe by the, by the speaking of His Word can handle resurrecting our bodies. Amen? It doesn't matter if you're in the deep of the sea, you've been burned to ashes, or whatever. God can handle your resurrection. That is, however, why historically Christians have been buried as a sign, as a symbol of their hope in the resurrection. We don't believe for a moment that in any way it helps God resurrect us by having our bodies buried intact. But it is symbolic of our hope. So here as we read this, Paul is talking about the coming of the Lord, the end of time. But he doesn't say... God is coming. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. You're in the midst of persecution, Thessalonians. You're in the midst of hard times, and it's going to get worse. Good news! It's going to get worse. But understand that He's coming back. And all of this, psh, you're not even going to remember it. It's going to f- small, so piddly as my God would say. So unimportant, it will not even be in your view. It's not worth comparing to the glory that is yet to be revealed. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. Then notice what he says after that. It continues. (laughs) Let me find my place here. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. 5, verse 2. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Seems like he just said that in the other passage. So here's Paul saying the same thing that Jesus says. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman. Now, how many of you have had a child before? Raise your hand if you've been in labor at some point. Put your hand down. You're a man. Alright, if you have been in labor, you know when it comes, it comes, right? You might get some, some tremors that come. Yes, I chose the word tremors on purpose. Those early contractions, maybe false contract, false labor. So you're getting some of those Braxton Hicks kinds of things that are going on. And it's not really the real thing yet, but it's a sign that you're closer, Right? You don't have those in your first trimester. You don't have those in your second trimester, unless something's wrong. You have those when you're preparing to deliver. And it doesn't mean you're going to deliver right now today, but when the pain comes, it's gripping, isn't it? And if you're holding on to your husband's hand, that's gripping too. I think I broke a couple of bones the reality of the the birth pain thing is this is exactly what God is talking about. When labor comes on and it it starts to come and then it gets worse and it gets worse until eventually it's all-consuming and it ends in the consummation of it, the delivery of this child. A child who was in a very small and limited world. They only knew this. And it seemed like everything. But we who are on the other side of that, we know. How many of you remember the womb? Now, when you were in the womb, you were very comfortable. You were well taken care of. You were happy. You get outside of the womb, and it's so much bigger and better and greater and grander that we don't even recall what that world was like. When the kingdom comes, Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that. Paul makes that comparison here. Jesus has said it repeatedly in various contexts, so we're going to see it over and over again through his words, through Paul's words, through Peter's words. Man, when we get there, it's going to be like being born. Like being born all over again. A new kind of existence. That makes the old existence just fade to nothing. Encourage one another with these words, he says. But understand, while people are saying peace and safety, there are a lot of false prophets, a lot of Christian teachers who want to say, hey, God loves everybody. God is love. There are no rules. You brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness. While people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You're not in darkness as if you don't know what's coming. So every time we read, keeping this in our, in our minds, every time we read that this is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come it's going to surprise us. As we read in, in Luke, it's going to come like a trap. It's not a trap for us. It's a delivery. It's a trap for those who are in darkness. It's a thief. It's a sudden judgment. It's an overwhelming terror that comes suddenly, swiftly, surely, and with finality. That same reality for the children of God is something we are to encourage one another with. Verse 5 You're all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, Sleep at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. So much I'd like to say about that. We don't have time. Let's uh, move to 2 Peter. Still moving to the right, to the back of the book. Past Hebrews and James. Right after James come Peter's letters. No longer Paul writing. The reason this is called 2 Peter is it's written by Peter. And it's the second letter 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, hence the name. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Wouldn't it be great if we spent a little more time working on stimulating one another toward wholesome thinking? It's so easy for us to get negative. Our conversations are so often about how bad the government is or how bad... Subs are, or how bad whatever, or this person on Facebook who needs to stop gossiping about everybody while we're gossiping about the person on Facebook. We do this. We get sucked into this. Wouldn't it be great if we did what Peter's doing and worked together to focus one another and stimulate one another in Christ-centered thinking so that our daily existence hinges on, then sings my soul how great thou art. Guess what? Jesus is coming back. Let's get excited. Let's get encouraged. Let's not get caught up in what's going on around us. Let's remember that he's redeeming. Wouldn't it be great if we did a little more of that? That's what Peter is writing about. He says, I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Verse 2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and by the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they'll say, where is this coming? Does that feel familiar at all? Paul says, encourage one another. We're around here with people all the time saying, resurrection. Just like the sentence. resurrection. God, so Do you really believe that? Isn't that just like every tribal religion? You, you believe in this hocus-pocus about Jesus? Scoffers. If He's real, then where is He? I just saw that on the Grinch about Santa Claus. Nobody's ever seen Him. Isn't that how we approach this? Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming He promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it is planned, as it has since the beginning of the creation. But they deliberately, I would leave out that word deliberately, they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the, by the same word, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, now, wait a minute. We went from encouraging to destruction. Yeah. There is no gospel without that. We need to recognize that the law and the gospel are hand in hand, always. Anybody who wants to tell you the law, we don't care about the Old Testament anymore. That's that's a different God. This New Testament God is loving. He's different. You can ignore that Old Testament stuff. Jesus took all that away. That's not true. Jesus is extremely clear about that. Every piece of the law, every tiny bit, of it, remains in effect until it is fulfilled, until it is completed. Jesus fulfilled much. Yet there is still more. Remain until the consummation of all things when God establishes His new kingdom on earth. In the meantime, we are anticipating this day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, verse 8 says, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, every day that we are alive, every day that God delays in returning, every single moment that the death and destruction and judgment of the wicked doesn't come is another day that you can snatch somebody out of the fire. This is another day that's been given to us to repent. Another day that gives us an opportunity to receive his offer of grace. Jesus said, Why, why would you wait till you get before the judge? Settle the accounts before you get there. Because you don't want to face the judge. This day is the day of salvation. This church age, before he returns, is our opportunity. To receive the mercy He offers us in Christ. This is the gospel. We're created for a relationship with Him. To give glory to God. And every aspect of our being is for that. And any aspect of our being that fails to do that drags us to hell. We're separated from God by our sin. And we can't fix it. I can't undo the hell in me by trying to put makeup on it. Right? A pretty corpse is still a corpse. I'm dead in my sin. But the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus died in my place and yours to take away all of that sin so that anyone who trusts in Him alone has life eternal and free that starts now and lasts forever. So with that's the case, if we have received that, if we're participating in that life with Him... Then, all of these warnings about the future, they don't apply. We have to be watchful. We don't have to be terrified. Because the judgment that's coming, the destruction that's coming, isn't for us. We're in Christ. He's already taken my punishment. So when God brings punishment, it doesn't apply to me. of the Lord will come like a thief. There's that thief concept again. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? you ever notice how the Scriptures always call for a response. It's not enough to know. It's actually, if we pull a Scripture, not enough to believe. It's only enough to believe when the belief leads us to repentance. There needs to be a response. If I say, yes, I believe, I accept, I agree, I assent to these facts that you're telling me. But it doesn't change us, then we don't have saving faith. There is no saving faith apart from repentance. If you have claimed Christ and you continue to live like the world, live the way you did before, then you don't know You need to repent. You need to take hold of yourself and say, what is going on? If I believe this, it needs to change my direction. That's the call. That's what Peter's saying here. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, sorry, wrong one. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But, in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, and a new earth, where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you, wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. In all this, we're just underlining and emphasizing what we see in Luke 21. The king is coming. Be watchful, not worried. If you're outside of Christ, you have every reason to be worried. Because the destruction that he's bringing is for you. But if you're hearing me say this, it doesn't have to be. You can be ready. You can turn your life over to Him, so to speak. Change your mind. Change your direction. Make yourself a living sacrifice. Lord, I'm Yours. i I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm not right. And I can't get right with You on my own because I don't have it in me. But I'm trusting that Jesus dying on the cross is enough. He paid it all. And because He rose, I rose with Him. And because of Your Spirit in me, I am finally, for the first time, able to live a life that pleases You. I was spiritually dead. Now I'm spiritually alive. Praise God. If that's you, then take Peter's advice. Make every effort to live in keeping with who you are. If Christ Defines you. Let that show up in your everyday actions. Let's fill in some blanks since you've got programs in front of you. We're going to rip through this. Back in Luke 21, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but go ahead and turn there so that you know you're in the right place. Jesus is telling us the end of the age is near. The end of the age is near. Notice that there are indicators of the inevitable. There are indicators of the inevitable. Sin progresses. So every time we see the world seem to get worse, it's not hopeless. It is a sign that we are progressing in a direction in the linear, not cyclical, but linear nature of history. There was a beginning. There is an end. Progressing toward that end. And there are indicators of this inevitability because this coming is sure and certain, we can see the signs, observe them and interpret them. Notice also the worry of the wicked there are indicators of the inevitable, and we see in the passage the worry of the wicked when you hear these things it sounds terrifying (coughs) but You don't have to be among those who will be destroyed. The worry is appropriate if you're not on God's team. Right? When the king comes, whether you're at peace or whether you're in terror depends on whose side you're on. (coughs) Pardon me? In contrast to the worry of the wicked, Jesus shows us the rejoicing of the ready. The rejoicing of the ready. In fact, in verse 28, we see when these things begin to take place, all these terrifying things, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. As the destruction of the wicked comes, the righteous comes with it. All that is not of God is burned up. If you are in Christ, you are of God. You are redeemed and saved through it. Indicators of the inevitable, worry of the wicked, rejoicing of the ready. Now, we need to finish with some application here. It's very simple, so it should be very quick. The right response to the reality of Christ's return is stated primarily in the negative here, so I'm going to state it primarily in the negative in our outline. First off, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. The disciples see only the outer part of the, of the temple. They, they don't see the fact that they've wandered away from God. They see that it's pretty, right? We like shiny things. It's pretty. That's why there are so many great Christian memes on Instagram. It's so awesome. And they're so false so many of the times. We see all these things about God's promises to make our lives better. That's not what the Scripture says. God's not here to make us happy. He is not primarily concerned with your happiness. He's concerned primarily with His glory and your holiness. Are you set apart for Him? All of these other questions that we ask ourselves, not relevant. Just not relevant. Am I surrendered to Him? Am I set apart for Him? If I am going to get caught up in the things of this world and become like the scoffers that Peter mentioned, well... Never changed so far. It's always been the same in my lifetime. No such thing as climate change because it doesn't look that much different. Or climate change is going to destroy the world because it looks so much different. It doesn't matter what side of an issue you're on. If you think that pollution is going to destroy the world, read the end of the book. Take care of the world. Christians should be the most concerned about ecology of anybody because we've been given the job of taking care of creation. But when it comes to an end, It's going to come the way Jesus said. It's foolish for us to think we know more than God. Now when I say it out loud, doesn't it just sound foolish? How many of us would walk around and say outwardly, I know more than God does. Nobody's going to say that outwardly. At least none of us. Maybe some of us. But don't we say that with our actions all the time? Don't we say that when we look at these things as if it's something we learn in Sunday school or in a sermon but it doesn't really affect the rest of our lives. When we're living there, we are basically denying the reality of what Jesus is saying. We're living as if the king isn't returning. As if what we do now doesn't matter. As if we can keep it all hidden and fool God. Don't be foolish. Next, we need to understand the right response to the reality of Christ's return. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be foolish. Don't act like it's never going to change, like nothing's ever going to be different or that God's not going to hold you accountable. There is a whirlwind that we will reap. But don't be deceived either. Notice what Jesus says to them. Watch out that you are not deceived. This is verse 8. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, the time is near. Don't follow them. Crazy cultists. I added that part. When you hear wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but and will not come right away. There are a lot of people preaching in pulpits, talking about everything in the world from blood moon to weather patterns and all these other things. Doom and despair. And Jesus is saying, don't oh, listen to that stuff. Listen, that's going to happen. Bad stuff's going to come. Wars are going to come. Every time you turn on the news and you see what's going on in the Middle East and all of the related uh, conflicts that are there, is it a sign of the times? Yes. Does it mean Jesus is going to come tomorrow? No. doesn't mean that. That's what he's saying. This is going to happen. It has to happen. There cannot, I'm just going to make a very obvious statement, there cannot, until the end, be final peace in the Middle East. There can't be peace in the world. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work for it. Of course we should work for it. But understand that there will be wars and uprisings. As long as there are two human beings, there will be conflict. That's reality. It doesn't mean that it's the end. The end is coming, but not right away. Don't be deceived. Don't let anybody mislead you. Don't be foolish, don't be deceived. I, this might be the most important. Or at least the second most. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. With all of the doomsayers out there that make everything seem so bleak and the world is coming to an end. You know, clearly Facebook is the mark of the beast, and all you know, there's so many things. Life is terrible. What happens when they take away our? Preach the Bible. We preach the Bible anyway. Same as they did in the book. It's going to happen. You're going to be persecuted. But, even if they put you on trial, God will give you the words and the wisdom to do what needs to be done. I don't know what I'm going to say. I I don't know. I've never done this. I'm not well trained. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit knows all of it. When He says He's going to help you through, He'll help you through. Now work your tail off to know as much as you can know. Study the word diligently. Just dig, dig, dig. No more, no more, no more. So that the Holy Spirit can have you prepared already. But don't worry. Don't stress. Lastly, don't be asleep. my mind as I'm writing this down, I'm thinking, don't be asleep at the wheel. This is the picture that he gives us of here, in Luke 12, Thessalonians, and Peter. Don't, don't not be ready. Be watchful. Watch out. Be on your guard. Be careful. Watch how you live. Prepare yourself. Don't get sucked into the things of this world. Notice that Jesus calls that being weighed down in, in the last paragraph, Verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with all this stuff that the world sees as freedom. Right? You know, all you Christians, you don't get to do anything. Actually, I get to do everything. Literally everything. But stuff is stupid. Why do I want to do that? Paul says that in Romans. Why in the world do you think it was some sacrifice? Why would you want to go back to the life that Jesus saved you from? You were miserable and you hated it. Why would you want that? That's crazy. Do you really miss that? The devil lies to us and gets us to believe it. Wow, how's he able to do that? How's he able to deceive us? How's he able to suck us back into that? Because we're asleep. We're not up at work. When Jesus is talking about this, there's there's an active play here. It's not passively waiting. It's actively watching understanding the boss has left you with work to do, do the work, expecting him to come back, being ready. Because if you've done the work and you're ready, you might remember when you were really prepared for that test in high school, right? I don't remember that. But You might remember when you were really prepared for that test in high school, and it felt different than the other times when you were fearful. I don't know if I'm ready. Man, I know this stuff. I got an A before I even put the pencil on the paper because I know it that well. That's a good feeling. I look around and I can tell which of you did your homework in high school and which of you didn't. That's a great feeling. Bring it. Bring that test because I know I'm getting an A. Or you can be like I was a lot of the time. Man, I'm I'm really nervous about this test. I I didn't do my homework. Damn, you know. I, I didn't do my homework. I don't know if I'm ready. What if I I lose my eligibility for sport if my mom finds out? That's a whole different level. When we're ready, when we're actively watching, when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, then when the king returns, instead of being full of regret, we are full of rejoicing. Please come, Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. We're ready. We're going to be a church ready for you. we're here. The King is coming. Be watchful, not worried. Let's pray Heavenly Father, as we round out our, our time together today, we want with all of our hearts to invite you into every part of our hearts, into every part of our lives, so that this would not just be some exercise we do on Sunday morning where we get together and we sing songs and we go through the motions and pretend like life is all squared away and get another little little jolt of inspiration before next week. Father, teach us to be watchful. Not to be afraid, but to recognize that our redemption is coming. That the coming of your kingdom, while it does mean destruction of all that is corrupted by sin, and every person who is not yours, who has not sold themselves out for you, Lord, for those who have received you, to the ones that you've made your children, knowing that your coming is a joy. not to be foolish or deceived or afraid or asleep but to be ready and to rejoice we pray this in Christ's name